Well, we are finishing up our series in Nehemiah, and I'm going to combine chapters 9 and 10 this morning. Now, if you remember where we were in this this story of this history, we have been in the seventh month. Now, some translations will say the seventh month, some will say October, because we're on a different calendar than they were. But whatever it is, it's the same month, seventh month, and this has been a, a hectic month for those folks. A lot has been happening in those 20 plus days that we've seen. The first day they got together in the book of Nehemiah, it was the Feast of Trumpets, their new year. The 15th or the 10th day of the month was the Day of Atonement. We call it Yom Kippur today. The 15th through the 21st was the Feast of Tabernacles. So they've been busy from the beginning to about now. And now we come to Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 1. And it says, on the 24th day of the same month, the Israelites gathered together fasting and wearing sackcloth and having dust on their heads. So they, if you remember the history, they had a great celebration. They came, they heard a word of God. They stood for five or so hours hearing the word preached. Then they had five or more hours the next day. And they went through all their rituals, all the things that they were required to do by law. All these things were because God was beginning a revival in the Jewish community. And so as we see that happens, when we worship, when we really come close to God, we really begin to see who we are as individuals. And what we do is we, unfortunately, we see our shortfalls. How many have found that when you really get close to God, you see how close you aren't to God? I wrote down here, have you ever had the experience of either a time in worship or in a class or in your own devotions, you read something or during your prayer, you all of a sudden feel guilty or feel convicted of something that you just read or just experienced? And sometimes when you read something, you know your past sins are forgiven, but how many have still have said in their heart, you know what, there's still something I gotta get rid of. There's still something in my life that needs to go. I know it's there, I need God to help me with it. The more you worship a holy God or study about who God is and how he deals with individuals, you discover that we're very similar to the folks in Bible times. I just finished reading Joshua, I'm gonna read Judges next. Now if you read Judges, you know it's Israel's like this all the way through Judges. They sin, they come back, they sin, they come back. And you read that and you think, man, how could these guys be so foolish? But then look at yourself. How often do we do the same thing? Up and down again. So the Jews got together again because in their time of worship and celebration, they did the Feast of Tabernacles. They finished all that. They realized the goodness of God. But during that time, they also realized why they were where they were they realized God's goodness but they also realized their sinfulness Romans 2 4 says or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness tolerance and patience not realizing that God's kindness leads you to repentance so once they realized and they experienced the goodness of God what's the first thing they did they realized they didn't come together to celebrate now they came together to repent and sometimes when we realize how God how good God has been to us our natural response should be that we want to be right with God we want to clean up everything in our life we want our life to be so clean because we realize how good God has been to us 
And the Israelites at this moment realized how sinful they were and where they got to this point, why they were there, why they were exiled, because of the sinfulness. In verse 2 in Nehemiah 9 goes on and says, Those of Israelite descent had separated themselves from all the foreigners. They stood in their places and confessed their sins and wickedness of their fathers. The word of God should always examine us. We should always look at it as either encouragement or challenge. Is God's word speaking to you? And the more you read it, the more God will show you of what needs to be changed in your life. And once you realize that God is speaking to you, it's one thing at a time, at least for me, then you can realize how good God is and how merciful he is. We did a study on sin a long time ago, and I used to think, well, you know, maybe can I go for five minutes and not sin? Sounds, yeah, I could do that. Can I go, if I can do five minutes, can I do an hour without sinning? If I can do an hour, can I go a whole day without sinning? Well, once you realize all the different meanings of sin and transgression and all that, you realize you can't. Because everything that God calls us to do, we, we just can't. We just can't avoid sinning. The good thing is, John 1, 1 John 1, 9, if you're faithful and just to, you know, faithful to confess your sins, he's faithful and just to forgive you of your sins. When you read God's word, you realize how short you fall, but you also realize that God knew that even before you came, became a Christian. How many really understand that? It's one thing to have God forgive your sins all in the past. Okay, that's, that's great. But when you come to know Christ as, as a beginning, you realize that at that point, God knew everything you would do from then on. And still he picked you, which was awesome to me. Oh, these, these those, uh, 10 most wanted cards, those blue ones, my name was on those cards. At one point, my name was on the top of that list of my wife's card, and it worked. So it works. When you realize how good you're not, but yet God pours his blessing upon you, it, would, it hopefully helps us to realize we want to get right with God. We want to do everything that God wants us to do. Verses 3 and 4 go on and say, They stood where they were, and they read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day, and spent another quarter in confession and worshiping the Lord their God. Standing on the stairs were the Levites, Jeshua, Bani, Kadmiel, Shebniah, hard name, hard name, hard name, who called with loud voices to the Lord their God. Now, years ago, and not that long ago, because I was part of it, church services would run for several hours. How many were at that time? I mean, they would run, you know, eight, ten hours. We went to a, on, on a missions trip to Mexico years ago, and we went to one of their services, one of their church services, and the first thing we noticed was it was basically a lean-to. It was a, it was a shack, and it had just benches that everyone sat on. It had lamp cord strung with little 60-watt bulbs. That was, their, that was their church. And it was hot, no air conditioning, obviously. And that service, six, seven hours, and the whole time we were shoulder to shoulder, it was packed. And it was worshiping God and, and confessing and hearing sermons. That's how church services used to be. And that's how it was with these folks. They were there for hours. It said a quarter of the day, which that six hours, they were there hearing God's word. They worshiped for more than an hour. And then the sermon would last for more than an hour. And then altar time would go on till mid-afternoon. In a lot of other countries, that's the norm. That's their normal service. 
because they have nowhere to run off to. When I was in Mexico, they had no place to go. We, we ministered in a place that was close to the dump. How many have heard of the dump in Mexico? The dump is, is, is acres and acres, and people actually live in that area. They, they're, they're born there, they're raised there, they die there in, in this dump area. They have no place to go. And unfortunately, a lot of American churches have seen to put God on a clock. We have a strict format, I do. We have a, a service schedule because we think God stops moving at noon. 12 o'clock, God says, okay, time's up. These folks stood for three hours to hear a sermon and then they stood for three more hours while they confessed their sins. A six-hour church service. Revival was continuing for these folks. And I think, I'm beginning to see a little bit of that right now because I think we would, we would want that. We would be okay with staying four, five, and six hours because God's moving. I'd like to think that we would be excited for that. God was doing a tremendous work in their lives and a lot of times it takes more than our allotted 90 minutes. Now this section, chapters 9 and 10, I'm going to skip over a lot of that because it's all names. We mentioned about names before. How many do that? You skip over the names and the genealogies and stuff. We mentioned earlier that God puts names in there because people matter. Names matter to God and God knows who you are. The rest of the chapter is the leaders who led them in a prayer that basically gives them a rundown of their history from Abraham to where they are now. And as they told the history of the Israelites, they went over all the reasons why they were put in exile, all the sins they did, all the things that caused God to finally have enough of it and send them into Babylon for exile. It talked about how many times as a country they walked away from God, but God was merciful and caused them to come back. Instead of just leaving them in the middle of their wicked ways, God still pursued them. God still wanted them back. Think about us. How many times do you hear about the goodness of God before you actually came to know him? You would hear testimonies of people of what God has done for them while you didn't know him. And you still ignored it. And I'm going to See, this is how God works. I have no idea what Anna's talking about. She has no idea what I'm talking about. We're using the same verse, though. 2 Peter 3, 9, he's patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. How many times after we trusted him did we fail? Can't count them. Yet in all of our mistakes, in all of our sinful ways, God still pursues you. How many of you who have older kids, kind of let them go. Eh, whatever they want to do. Now, as parents, you don't do that. You ask an older parent, your kids are always your kids. You would think that at 18 years old or 20 years old, finally, don't have to worry about them anymore. And no, take it from us, the worries change. You're still their parent, you still worry, and you still, even if they're, we have a daughter who's gonna be 38 this year, you still worry about them, right? You still worry about what they're doing. Are they making the right choices? And they don't want to hear that. But as a parent, you still worry. It doesn't stop. And if we as failing human beings do that, how much more does God still care about you, pursue you, and really want what's best for you? 
As I was reading this, I thought about our own country. You know, as we've been learning on Wednesday night, we, found, we were founded on Christian principles, but over time, we've kind of abdicated that responsibility as a church. We kind of took, took ourselves out of that. And what's happened is a lot of folks have left the faith. A lot of those in power have left the faith, and our country is turning more, more and more secular. But in spite of all the statistics that say a high percentage of Americans say they're Christian, church attendance is at its lowest in decades. How many churches have stopped believing and preaching the Bible, the truth? Because they want to feel more relevant, more comfortable. That's a big term in Christian circles now, relevant, being trying to be relevant. And there's a part, you want to be relevant, you want to be able to minister to your community, but a lot of times, people have taken that to mean I'm going to become like my community in order to be relevant whereas God tells us to be separate from the community still relevant still ministering to them but taking a stand for righteousness sake and as a nation we see it every day we're falling more and more into sin more and more into decadence but if God was able to punish and correct the Jewish nation and bring them back do you think God can do that for our country that God can do that? Now, it, we talked about this before. It took the nation of Israel to, re, to remember what they did, and they had to repent. Second Chronicles 7, 14, if my people humble themselves and pray. So that puts it upon us. Part of the things we're praying for in 21 and 21 is God revive me, the church, the country. We want God to bring revival to this country. And I think what's going on is getting a lot of Christians excited or nervous for what's going on and gets us praying. And I think revival can come. So what's the order? Revive me personally, then revive us as a church, and then as a nation. So we want ourselves to be revived. That's what revival is. Revival is when people get saved. How many know that? That's what, I mean, there's one thing to be excited in worshiping God, but re- true revival is when people come to know Christ in droves and I believe that can happen Nehemiah 9:38 says in view of all this we are making a binding agreement putting it in writing and our leaders our Levites and priests are affixing our seals to it well the leaders had to do it first if they want people to follow the leaders have to be one taking the first step you can't be a leader if you're not willing to make the same sacrifices as everybody else but once the leaders do it, they expect everyone else to follow them. And it lists the leaders, and then it's the people's turn. Once the leaders say, okay, we're on board, we're putting our signet ring on it, we're on board, that encourages everyone else to do the same. Basically, I can't ask you to pray for revival if I ain't praying for revival. Nehemiah 10, 28. The rest of the people priests, Levites, gatekeepers, singers, temple servants, and all who separate themselves from the neighboring peoples for the sake of the law of God, together with their wives and their sons and their daughters, are able to understand. All those now join their brothers, the nobles, and bind themselves with a curse and an oath to follow the law of God, given through Moses, the servant of God, and to obey carefully all the commands, regulations, and decrees of the Lord our, of the Lord. Our Lord. The people were vowing to make 
a new start. They knew their sin, they knew that was, but the past was behind them. They couldn't change the past, but they're committed to making a new start. Now, I confess I watched American Idol last night. And I did hear one great quote. Lionel Richie gave this quote last night. Some kid came in who had done a lot of things in his bath that he was kind of ashamed of. And Lionel Richie says this, he says, if you swing at the past, you're gonna trip over your future. I thought, that was a good quote. You can't change what's behind you. And if you stay there, you're never gonna be what God calls you to be. They were committed to making a new start. Look, they, they confessed their sins, they knew what they did. It's a new beginning. Alexander White says, the victorious Christian life is a series of new beginnings. No matter where we are today, if you're a nominal believer, you in and out of church and not really committed, start new. If you're a, a, a person who's really excited for God, something tomorrow is gonna be new. Psalm 37, 23 says, the steps of the godly are directed by the Lord. He delights in every detail of their lives. Though they stumble, they will not fall, for the Lord holds them by the hand. How many are excited to really take that step of faith for God? I mean, really see what God is gonna do. And I believe, I wouldn't be saying if I didn't believe that God is moving and God is beginning to stir in, in me and in this church, and I think a lot of churches, that revival can happen and people's lives can be transformed by the word of God. So the Jewish people were repentant for their nation's sins and their own, and now they're committed to receiving God's blessing. They're committed to moving forward. We're not gonna do what we did before, we're not gonna live there, but we're gonna make sure that our life from here on in is right. And the real proof of that is what happens next in your life. You know, we used to, we have taken kids to convention for years, and you've all been to women's conventions and men's conventions, and what happens at least to the youth convention is the kids go up and they, you know, they're crying at the altar and they're vowing and they're having a, you know, a really good time with God. And then they come home and things go back to normal, and some of them are excited for God, but some of them aren't. Some of them go back to what they were like before they left. They got caught up in the emotion of convention. Unless we think that we adults don't do that, we do the same thing. Part of wanting God's blessing is committing to going forward, not continuing to do what you've done before. There will be evidence in your life if your desire to follow God is, is sincere. They promised to follow God's word even if it meant hardship to them. And we all say, you know, Lord, whatever you want, I'll do it. Even if it's tough, I'll do it. And the first time toughness comes, we kind of sit back and say, whoa, whoa, I didn't mean that kind of tough. Well, verse 30 says, we promise not to give our daughters in marriage to the peoples around us or take their daughters for our sons. When the neighboring peoples bring merchandise or grain to sell on the Sabbath, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or any holy day. Every seventh year, we will forego working the land and cancel all debts. We all want to obey God's word until it tells us to not do something that we really want to do. Isn't that true? Look, I'm going to commit to you, but this one, this one thing, I, I don't know if I like that. 
the Jewish people were not to marry outside of their faith. They were not to bring in foreign spouses that would bring in foreign idols, which is exactly what got them in trouble every single time. They would marry someone outside the faith or bring another tribe in, another nationality, and they would start worshiping that idol. How does that equate to today? I think we all know how that equates today. Bible says don't be unequally yoked. That means as Christians we can't marry someone who is not a Christian. I didn't write it. Not a lot of people like that. That means we have to be objective in our feelings. How many know that not everyone who says they're a Christian are a Christian? I know a lot of Usually it's guys, but I know a lot of folks who, in the dating process, will tell you they're Christian. But after the wedding, yeah, you realize they're not really a Christian. They were just trying to impress you. We need to be discerning. Matthew 7, 21 says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father in heaven. That also applies to dating. I would venture to say that applies to any kind of business venture because when you're unequally yoked with whatever you're doing, it's going to come to a point of friction at some point. Another thing they weren't allowed to do was to work or make money at certain times because they were set apart for God. God said he would provide for them in the absence of them working. Now, doesn't mean we don't work. I mean, I got that, right? Second, or Second Thessalonians 3.10 says a man will not work, he doesn't eat. It just means we have to have our work in its right priority. Where is work? He also told them he would provide for them when they forgave debts. It might have been a struggle for them to forgive someone's debt. But God says do it. I'll make up for it. God told them there would be enough food in, this, in the sixth year to cover the seventh year. Remember the Bible says don't work in the seventh year. Don't plant, don't do anything. I'll give you enough food. You'll have enough food in the sixth year to provide for you in the seventh. God did the same with manna. He said don't, don't collect manna on the Sabbath. I'll give you enough on Friday to help you through Saturday. And what happened? They would go out and collect manna on the Sabbath and it would be all spoiled and rotten, right? God said, I'll provide. Now, I wrote on here, I'm going to pull up my soapbox for a minute. I don't want to offend anybody. Sunday is not the day to catch up on the stuff that you didn't do the rest of the week. I'll put my soapbox away. Church services do not last 24 hours. I use the same principle as I did for tithing and as I do for prayer. 90% goes further than 100%. I can't tell you why, but it does. Biblical. Ask anybody who does, you'll see what it does. Praying. If I start working before I start praying because I have a lot to do, I never get everything done. But if I take time to pray and read first, then I can get stuff done. I don't know how it works, but it does. God will make up the time that you spend that he tells you to spend with him. 
If you give God the time in worship, you will have time to do your other work. Nehemiah 10.32 says, We assume the responsibility for carrying out the commands to give a third of a shekel each year for the service of the house of God. For the bread set out for the table, for the regular grain offerings and burnt offerings, for the offerings on the Sabbaths, new moon festival, and appointed feasts, for the holy offerings, for sin offerings to make atonement for Israel, and for all the duties of the house of our God. The first thing that God was challenging them to do was to be obedient in their lifestyle and choices. It's easy to simply come to church. It's easy to show up, act like a Christian in front of everybody else. God was telling them, you need to be obedient personally before you're obedient corporately. And their first thing in obedience was giving to God. God's work has always been supported by God's people. Giving is the only thing that God tells us to test him on. I remember we were going, when we were not married very long, and money was always a struggle for us. And I, I was looking through the Bible to find a verse that says you don't have to tithe. And I am trying to find one, I'm trying to dig one out, and I'm trying to take them out of context, but I couldn't find one. God's word tells you to do something. God says, I'll, I'll make it up. Malachi 3.8 says, should people cheat God? Yet you have cheated me. But you ask, what do you mean? When did we ever cheat you? He says, you have cheated me out of the tithes and offerings due to me. You are under a curse for the whole nation has been cheating me. Bring all the tithes into the storehouse so there will be enough food in my temple. If you do, says the Lord Almighty, I will open windows of heaven for you. I will pour out a blessing so great you won't have enough room to take it in. Try me. Let me prove it to you. That's the only thing God tells us to test him on. Because in, just in their time, I think in our time, money is a big thing. What did Jesus say? You can't serve two masters. Either you serve money or you serve God. Now the question is, did God need their money? No. He didn't need your money. He could poof and provide everything they needed. He wants our trust. That's what it's all about. Do we have faith that God says he will meet your needs if you do this? It's easy to have trust and faith in God when it doesn't really require us to step out into the unknown. Writing that first check before you write out all your bills scary thing but do we trust him that it works at the end I remember we moved to Florida for years I was actually doing accounting work and I was paid more than I, I ever gotten paid in the ministry and I remember the first tie check I wrote out was like wow that was a big check it was easy to write a small check but now it's a big check okay God I'm really trusting you because the principle's the same. I'll trust you even though I'm giving this huge check right now. God was faithful. God provided it. God wants us to trust him. It also allows us and people around us to know that they are necessarily a part of God's kingdom, God's work. You know, we're asking for folks to help us with VBS and other things. God could provide, you know, instantly 
robots, or whatever to help us. But God chooses to use people to minister to other people. I think Gil mentioned it in Sunday school this morning. There's a difference between a Zoom meeting and an in-person meeting. You have that interaction, you have that relationship. You have a, a touch that you don't have in Zooms or FaceTime or whatever you use. There's a reason that God chooses to use people to bless people because you have that relationship. It's one thing to have someone tell you over the phone that they appreciate you. It's another one to have them hug you and tell you they appreciate you because we all need that touch. God wants to use people to bless people because that's how it works. When you, and I mentioned this last week, I think, when you do a ministry and you see the effect that you have on someone in your ministry, how you have blessed them by doing something for them, you walk away joyful because you realize it. Not just you were there, but somehow God used you to touch somebody else. And you walk away feeling, man, God, God actually chose me? He actually used me to touch that person? That's where the joy comes from. So God wants us to be involved with that. If we just sat around and let God do everything for us, how would we grow? How would your faith grow if God just painted you everything? How many of you have kids that just want you to hand them everything? How's that work out for you when they're teenagers, when they're 20-something? If you've given them everything and everything and everything, you've never had to work for anything and you give them everything, it usually doesn't work out well for them because they expect everyone to give them anything. If we sit around and let others do everything for us, what happens? We become spoiled, lazy, and dependent. And I think that's partly why society is going the way it is. Everyone's dependent on somebody else to do for them. If I don't work, the government will send me a check. If I don't do this, someone else will provide for me. God calls us to work. God calls us to do what he's called us to do and trust that whenever we are faithful to him, he will make up what we give. You can't outgive God, as the saying says. Verse 34 says, that we, the priests, the Levites, and the people have cast lots to determine when each of our families is to bring to the house of God at set times each year a contribution of wood to burn on the altar of the Lord our God as it is written in the law. The people all had to work in the maintaining of God's temple. It wasn't just the priests and the Levites, but everyone was involved in maintaining the upkeep and everything that was involved with the temple because everyone was important in the Jewish nation. Everybody had a part to play. Everyone was required to do that. God could have used the leaders. God could have used the priest, but he wanted everyone to take ownership of the ministry. And it's important for the well-being of any church that we take ownership of what God has given us. That means everyone here is important to the well-being of Dover Assembly. Everybody has a part to play. This is your church. Everyone should take pride in the ownership of this church. Our old pastor, he used to tell folks, this is your church. If you see a, a wrapper in the parking lot, don't wait for the maintenance guy to pick it up. It's your church. You pick it up. You maintain the church. If you see something that needs to be done, if you can't do it, call it to someone's attention, but it's your church. How many of you have been in rental homes versus homes that were owned by the people that were there? Big difference. A rental home, 
Not your home. You don't care. Housing projects. Most, not all, most people don't care because it's not their home. They don't own it. We want our church to be the best. We all own, this is our ownership. God wants us to take ownership of it. It's not somebody else's. It's not mine. It's not the deacon boards. It's yours. Take ownership. God wants the Israelites to take ownership of the temple. It's theirs. It wasn't the leaders. It wasn't the priests. It was everybody's temple. The remaining verses talk about how they were going to tie the tent of everything. It wasn't just so they could say the words. They had just read how God promised to bless and take care of them if they did this. And so now they were excited to see what God was going to do next. You know, it's one thing to, to step out in faith and do something. It's quite another to see the response to that. I've been praying for specific things these past couple of weeks and slowly but surely I'm seeing little things happen that I've been praying for. And maybe I'll share what they are later on but it's something that was for me. I needed to see. And I see God doing it in little areas. And that tells me God's answering those prayers. It's one thing to pray him, but man, when you see that it working. They were just released from captivity and now they're on the verge of something new. We effectively just got released from captivity of COVID. And now we're excited to see what God's gonna do next. We come every Sunday trusting and believing that God will do something miraculous. And one of the things that we want to see is the miraculous. We want to see things answered in prayer, but that we know God was doing it. I read a quote that says, C.S. Lewis said this, the mind which asks for a non-miraculous Christianity is a mind in the process of relapsing from Christianity into mere religion. That just means if we're, if we're not careful, we won't expect God to do anything miraculous. We will just come and do our thing and go home without expecting anything miraculous to happen. If that happens, C.S. Lewis is saying, now we're just, we're just gonna have religion. We're not gonna have a relationship. It's gonna be a system of rules and regulations without any relationship. But when we come to church, we expect God to do the miraculous. It doesn't have to be you know, explosions. I read in Joshua where God made time stand still. Hey, if God can make time stand still, and later we read that God sent time backwards, if God can do that, he can surely save someone. He can surely do something with that property over there. He can surely turn this nation around. He can revive us. And once the church is revived, there's nothing that God can't do through a revived church. What's the Bible say? God created the church and the gates of hell won't prevail against the church. That's us. If we are revived, nothing can stand against what God wants to do through us, but we need to be revived to do it. I'm gonna close with this. Do you believe in a miracle-working God? Do you believe that God can do something that we think is impossible to do? If we commit to follow God's word totally, do you believe that God's 
that God will move. You know what you just described? Revival. Would you stand as we close this morning? Would your head bow, your eyes closed for a moment? As we said many times before, the most important miracle that God can ever do is to bring someone into a relationship with him. In our terms, the person becomes saved, becomes born again. If you're here, this is your very first time in Dover Assembly, we're happy to see you. We're glad you're here. But more importantly, we're glad that you're able to hear God's word, God's truth. And we don't believe in accidents or coincidences. We believe that God has his hand upon everything. God's a sovereign God. It means God can do whatever he wants to do. And you're here because God had you here to either experience something or see something or hear something that he needed you to hear. If you've never really trusted Jesus for your, for your salvation, in other words, you're a sinner, you know you're a sinner. And the Bible says the wage of the sin is death. Without that forgiveness of Christ, you have no relationship with God. But the Bible says the gift of God is, is eternal life through Christ our Lord. As many as receive him, to those he gave the power and authority to be called children of God. If you're here and you've never really trusted Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, you've never really can look at back at a date in your life where you bowed your knee before God and said, forgive me. But you want that today. You, you feel that tug of the Holy Spirit today. That's God drawing you to him. Your job or your responsibility is just to basically answer that. God's not going to make you do it. He wants you to choose to love him. Choose to trust him. If that's you and you want really to place your faith in Christ, I want you to raise your hand. I'm going to pray with you. Hallelujah. Maybe you're here this morning and eh, you've been kind of walking the fine line between living for God and, and living in the world. You keep wanting to do what's right, but like, just like Paul said, I keep doing the things I know I shouldn't do. And you're in a close relationship with God, and then you're not in a close relationship with God. Well, I believe that today can be the day that you change that, that you leave this place committed, not just today, but tomorrow, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, all the way through next week, you are committed daily to walking with God. That the nominal Christianity is gone, the revival that you seek is in your spirit and you want that for yourself. If you feel that's you, I want you to raise your hand. I'm gonna pray with you as well. Hallelujah. Father, I thank you. Lord, I thank you for your grace that's been applied to each and every life. I thank you for Jesus who gave himself up so that we could have a relationship with the God of the universe who created everything and our lives can be transformed from what we were to what we are, Lord. We, we can't see it in the natural, but we know by your spirit, you transform us. Everyone here, if you have a relationship with Christ, you know exactly what I'm talking about. And I thank you for those who have raised their hand this morning. I pray that, God, you would touch them, you would fill them right now with your spirit. 
Allow them to really understand and experience the love that you have for them on a daily basis. And Father, I pray as we continue to pray for those in our family and our friends who don't know you, Lord, I believe you're beginning a revival. And I pray that you would touch their lives, that you would do what it takes in their life to bring them to the cross, that our unsaved loved ones would come to know you, Jesus. If you're watching as a video and you don't know Christ, this is the time that you get right with God. Father, I pray for our country. I pray for our church for revival. I pray that God, our hearts will be open to what you want to do. In these last days, Father, we want to be about your business. We want to make sure that we, whenever it is, that we end well. That Lord, our lives matter to the kingdom of God. What we do matters to the kingdom of God. And I pray that you would revive us, each one of us individually, and then revive this church. And Lord, there's nothing that can stop what you want to accomplish in this community. So Lord, I commit this church to you. I commit each one of us to you, Lord. We're your servants. Fill us with your spirit. Anoint us with your power. Send us out under that anointing. And then prepare people. Prepare events. Prepare our life to be used by you. Now Lord, I commit each person to you in the name of Jesus. And everyone said, amen. Amen. God bless you. Have a great week. See you Wednesday night.